into the book of Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9. I think the bulletin may actually say we're going 5 through 12. We're actually going 5 through 15 today. Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 5 through 15. We looked at last time we were together in the first few verses of chapter 9. We called that study Revival God's Way. Revival God's way. Where we saw there that when the Spirit of God moved amongst God's people, that the Word of God was central. What's the beginning point of the revival? It's when the Word of God has a central place among the people of God. It's when the Word of God is proclaimed in its clarity and its purity to those who are outside the kingdom of God and men and women are brought into the kingdom. But it's where the Word of God is central. We also saw that the work was continual. It's not a flash in the pan. It's one of those, as we saw there in the in the earlier study, this was from the first of the month to the 24th of the month and in between they had festivals they observed and they came back and the Word of God had been central. The Word of God had been given opportunity to have, do its work in the hearts of the people. And so they came back from the festivals, the festival of the trumpets, from the feast of the booths and tabernacles. They came back allowing the Word of God and the Spirit of God to to take the essence of what these feasts were to mean and, the, and they were still broken. And we saw that the witness of the revival is contrition. There's a brokenness in the people of God. When we hear the Word of God, the, the first response is a brokenness there. And it's a response that we witness here. And so the people have gathered again together here in chapter 9. In verse 4, the people, they confessed. I'm sorry, verse 3 of this chapter. They stood in their place. They read from the book of the law, the Lord your God, for a fourth of the day, for three hours. For another fourth, they confessed. They confessed and they worshipped the Lord. The religious leadership in verse 4, the Levites, they are those who cried out to the Lord their God. What a good thing when those who are in leadership can lead the right way. And so the Levites were those they were calling for in verse 4. The last part it says, And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And we see in verses 5 through 38 something of the substance, the particulars of this confession, of this praise that was being offered unto God. My, the translation I use, of course, is the New American Standard Bible, and it's mine is set up in something of the poetic fashion. When they do that in your Bibles, like the Book of Psalms, and many of the translations, it's not written like just get in the line verse. It's written in like phrase, like we would do the stanzas of a song. And the New American Standards, most new the tra- new translations have it set up in that way. But this section is not purely poetry. And it's not purely prose either. It's kind of a mix between, and one writer has simply called it something of a a rhythmic liturgical language. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, maybe where you've, like on the Messiah, if you heard some of the recitatives where you have someone, they're singing a scripture verse, and there's almost like there's there's no rhythm to it. They're not locked into a rhythm. Uh, there's, There's a freedom in the expression of it. And that's kind of what I think of when when we think about the setting here, this kind of rhythmic liturgical language is given here. The closest parallel that we have of this text comes to us in Psalm 106. Many of the verses are very similar. However, the the occasion that one of the distinctions here is this psalm here never rises to the to the hallelujahs and to the praise that we see in Psalm 106. And I think the reason is obvious because this is a point of being of being broken. It's a time of confession before God. 
And we're going to be looking this morning again at Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. And although there is beginning in 16 and following, there's much in the way of what we would say confession of sin, kind of what we might term the negative aspects of this confession. This begins with a very positive focus as it presents to us the ideal setting the ideal setting where they see the work of God taking place. And so I've titled my, my message this morning, A Good Confession. You know, one of the old saying, confession is good for the soul. I started to call this, well, this is a confession that really is good for, for the soul as it accomplishes much in the way, but it shows where their heart is. And being led in verse 5 by the Levites. The Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Heshebniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou alone art the Lord. You've made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them, and the heavenly host bowed down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You did find his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You did hear their cry by the Red Sea. Then you did perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you did know that they acted arrogantly toward them. And, made a, and you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you did divide the sea before them, and they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you did hurl into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you did lead them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you did come down on Mount Sinai and did speak with them from heaven. You gave to them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you did make known to them your holy Sabbath and did lay down for for them commandments, statutes and law through your servant Moses. You did provide bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You did bring forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you did tell them to enter in order to possess the land that you did swear to give them. Certainly one of the most prized stones in the world is the diamond. You know, the diamond is certainly a very beautiful stone. And, but the reality is much of the beauty of a diamond is, is hidden to, to us. Unless you're trained in recognizing uh, the qualities that you look for. You have an untrained, if you have an untrained eye, you're, you haven't been trained to look for certain things. You know, you can look at a diamond. I can go and look at diamonds, and they all kind of look the same. There might be one bigger. I might even notice the cuts a little bit different, but they all kind of look alike to me. But if you get someone who's trained, they look at those diamonds, they carefully examine, them, they consider the things that like size. 
They consider things like the weight. They consider things the color, the hue. They consider the hardness. And then once you get to the point of actually cutting, they consider how well it's been cut. And so these diamonds, they're priced and they're valued somewhat accordingly. You know, as I thought about this message this morning, I thought that's in reality kind of where we are spiritually. You know that we have no heart to grasp the glory and the greatness of God. We're not trained for that. Our hearts are not trained for that. To grasp something of, of the glorious God whom we serve, who has made us. So God graciously reveals to us. You know, it's like the man who is an expert in diamonds and you go in and you see him at work and you're looking at the two, he looks all the same. And he says, oh, come here, let me show you something. Let me show you what to look for here. And he has the little piece that looks, at, looks through with his eye and he sees and he starts examining things. And all of a sudden, you begin to see things you didn't see before. You see the beauty that you would not have recognized before. God's done that for us. He recognized that we're untrained. And so He's given us His Word. And He reveals to us something of His glory so that we can, we can grasp, something, grasp something of it. And it's a grasp of this glory as the, the Levites begin there in verse 5. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. It's a grasp of this glory of God that serves as the backdrop, as the backdrop for the confession. You go to the jewelry stores and you see those beautiful diamonds and you see that many times they're in a setting of a, of a ring or a necklace, an earring or something like that. What do, you, what do you see as the backdrop? Many times you see that you know, it's the beautiful black or the dark velvets because that's the backdrop that, it, that reveals to you something of the glory of that diamond, of that precious stone the backdrop for us to grasp something of the glory of God is, is what's behind this confession here. They've, they want us to see. And we're going to look at the backdrop. What are they seeing? Where are they beginning this confession? It's called a confession and you don't see anything by way of admitting, acknowledging of sin until you get to verse 16. That's where it starts. But you look at verses 5 through 15 and you see here a wonderful, wonderful confession of the glory and the greatness of God. And it's because that God is glorious. God is glorious. That heart confession must begin with an appropriate vision of Him. And that's where true confession must begin. Now it's good that the people of God are broken. It's good that the people of God are coming to a place to confess their sin. But let me tell you, you don't have a right understanding of your own sin if you don't have a right understanding of God. We need to see God so that Confession of sin is something that's somewhat normal, somewhat natural. So I ask this morning as we, as we look at our text, I just pray that the Spirit of, of God will let us enter in this morning to something of the glory that, that the Levites have led this group of people as they've come together to worship the Lord. First of all, we see that He is glorious in His creation. He is glorious in His creation. Verses 5 and 6, the last part of Verse 5, O may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all your hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea, all that is in them. You do give them life, to give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bow down before you. 
What's the clear message of this confession? To consider God is to consider one for whom there is no equal. Now, who shall we liken unto the Lord? When you start thinking God is like, you want to describe God. God is like, and you realize that anything that we're going to say is, is so far removed from revealing anything of the nature of, and the character of God. God chooses, again, to reveal Himself in words that we can understand. He reveals Himself to us as a Father. We can understand that. But let me tell you, what man, what man would want to say, well, God is like me. He's a much better Father than I am. We would, God reveals Himself to us in the Scripture as a King. Language we can understand. But what King in His right mind, because we know that some have done it, what King in His right mind would say, well, God is like me. Those are the things that help us to grasp something of the nature of God. But there, we need to understand there's a, there's a great gulf between the king, any king of men and the king of heaven. There's a great gulf between any earthly father and God who is our heavenly father. There's a great gulf. And it helps us to at least get an idea, but there's nothing here of just a... a I mean, what do you say? How do you comprehend something that you can't grasp something that you can't see something that you cannot comprehend God the incomprehensible so the backdrop for the confession here as the Levites begin leading is that the one that we're talking of this God that we're considering is one who is without equal he is one who is beyond comparison we see that he is unique in his existence they say there you alone verse 6 you alone are the Lord there is none like you you reign supreme you share your throne with none who is likened to the Lord our God? You are one. You made the heavens. You made the earth. You made the seas. You give life. Here's the great classification of things. Let's, let's classify all things that are. All things that exist. Here's the great distinction. There is God the Creator who is in one, in one classification. Bear with me. But everything else. Everything else falls within the realm of the created. When we think of creator and we think of created, God stands alone. We think of created. That's us. That's our world. That's our universe. That's everything that we know and that we see and even those things that we do not see. There's a great difference between God and anything else. He alone is the Lord. He alone has the power of creation. Everything else is the work of His hand. He's unique in His existence. Not only is He unique in His existence, He is also unique in His exaltation. Verse 5, Your glorious name, O may Thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Now what's He saying? What are they saying here? Here's the problem. The words of praise that we desire to offer to the Lord. The words of blessing, speaking good things of the Lord that we desire to offer to the Lord, that those things fall horrendously short Speaking anything of the worth and the majesty and the glory of God. He's unique in His exaltation. We can't give the right expression to that. We're called to worship. We're called to exalt the Lord. But we need to understand as we begin, you know, there's the hymn writer, oh, for a thousand tongues to saying, this one can't do it. Let me tell you, a thousand won't either. Can't do it. To, be, to begin to express anything of the glory and the greatness of God. Verse 6, he says here that the heavenly host bow down before you. 
last part of verse 6. The heavenly host bowed down before you. What is this? Well, there's some, there's some debate here. Is it speaking of angelic beings? Those who are the unfallen angels that are still in the presence of God as the heavenly host, the host of heaven. There are places in Scripture that's referred to. Is it speaking of the stars, the sun, the things that we see in the heavens? That's a possibility as well. And to be honest with you, I can't answer that question with any degree of certainty. But whichever it is, if it's literal in the sense that it's angelic hosts who are actually bowing down before Him, what does it tell us? Those that are in the very presence of God, those who have not been removed because of sin, those who see God more clearly than anyone, what is their response? Their response is they recognize the glory of God and they bow before Him. Because they recognize that He deserves that. He is great. And here he is glorious. And you see something of the arrogance of Satan. The creature who would not bow. But if this heavenly host is figurative, that he's speaking figuratively, that the sun and the stars bow. What's he saying in there? What's being conveyed there? It's recognizing this that all creation. It owes its existence to Him and that there is a rightness. There's a rightness of this image of all that is created, even the stars in heaven themselves, of giving glory to God, which Psalm 19 tells us in fact they do. It's right. It's right that all of God's creation, if it was animate, if it was alive, if it had the capacity of life, that all of it would bow and worship before God. Because God is glorious. He is unique in His exaltation. See, there is none like the Lord our God. Listen, if the unfallen angels, the unfallen angels in in His presence, they bow, how much more should we? How much more should we? If the inanimate, heavenly bodies bow, how much more should we? I mean, after all, folks, we are intelligent capable creatures. We are those that bear the image of God. And is it not something of a revelation of just how far we have fallen? The mere specks of dust refuse to acknowledge the Lord of Lords. I mean, we're debating, can we talk about God's law? Can we post it? You heard the Supreme Court's decision this week, you know. Can we post the laws of God? How far we've fallen. So something of our prayer should be open our understanding, O God. Open our understanding. Fill our vision. Loosen our tongues that we might see, we might speak of the utter uniqueness of our God. He is glorious. And that's where this confession begins. He's glorious in His creation. But not only that, but also He's glorious in His covenant. Verses 7 and 8. See, God made a covenant, we're told, reminded of here. God made a covenant with Abraham. He chose to manifest His glory. He chose to reveal His glory through a binding agreement with humanity, with Abraham. So we see here, first of all, we see the glory of His grace. Verse 7, You are the Lord God who did what? Who chose Abram. What do we see here? We see here God's 
initiative. We see here God's covenant with sinful man. Folks, have we comprehended that? Have we grasped that? That the God who is so glorious, the God who has created these things, the God who has created us, we are the work of His hands. We are mere dust in His sight. And God enters into a binding agreement with us. Do we grasp that? I think not. Have you ever thought about entering into a covenant with a piece of dust in your front yard? I'm going to make a binding agreement with my rock. That's nonsense. You understand what God's done here? The level of condescension that God has reached down to a people who are walking in defiance and rebellion against Him, would it not have been just as easy and just as right, just as righteous for God to have destroyed the human race? Enter into a covenant. Who would ever have thought of that? Another testimony of the Scripture being the Word of God. Who would have ever considered the God of heaven as He's revealed to us in the Scripture? And that same Scripture tells us this God of heaven covenants with us. This people. He chose Abram and he says in verse 8, He found his heart faithful. Found his heart faithful. Let me just make sure you understand this. God wasn't looking around the human race, seeing if there was somebody down there that was faithful. This is not an this is not an explanation of discovery. You know, it's not that's not the way it happens. This is not describing God's discovery, rather, this is a choice. This is a choice. How could God possibly look upon any member of fallen humanity and say and be said of him that he found his heart faithful? It's because God chose to give that man what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. The merits of the righteousness of Christ laid upon His account. And so God made a choice to reckon that to Him. As the book of Romans tells us that Abram believed God and it was counted Him as righteousness. He had righteousness given to Him. It was not that God looks, ah, here's Abram, he's trying, bless his heart, I'll help him out. Here's a man with a heart just as wicked as any other person, just as wicked as any of ours. And God chose him. And God looked at that heart and He said, faith. Faithful. And then he says, he gave, a, gave him a covenant, verse 8. Look at the, the context, verse 8 here. Look at the, the heart of this. You made a covenant with him. But look at the next thing it says to give. You made a covenant with him. To give. Now, we think of covenants. Many times we think of more in terms of contracts, but we think of things that are are mutually beneficial for both parties. You went into a covenant with someone. You think, all right, they benefit this way. I benefit this way. It's kind of a, I'll do my part. You do yours. This is just the bind. This is just the agreement that we're holding to. What did he say here? You entered into a covenant. You made a covenant with him to give, to give the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, to give to his descendants. See, this isn't a 50-50 proposition. This isn't God doing his part, Abraham doing his. 
What's God got to gain here? What's He gain? Nothing. Simply put, God desired to manifest His glory. The glory of His grace by entering into this covenant. Where else do you see the grace of God if you do not see it in God's willingness to receive sinners? And he doesn't go to Abraham and say, all right, you do your part, I do mine. It was a, if you read the account of God's covenant with Abraham, it was very one-sided. Abraham fell asleep. Or God made his covenant. Very one-sided. There was nothing for Abraham. Yeah, I mean, here's reality, folks. What have we ever, what have we ever and what could we ever give to God? So, well, I could give him my life. Let me tell you something. He holds your life. He holds it. He's got your life. He's got the number. Psalm 139 tells us he's got the number of your days. He's got it. What can you give to God? So he reveals the glory of his grace in entering into this covenant with Abraham. What a condescension it truly is. But it's a covenant to give. A covenant to give. Also the glory of his goodness. The last part of verse 8. And you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. What are you saying? You're good. You're righteous. The glory of His goodness, the glory of His righteousness. God always does what is absolutely right. And He fulfills His promise. He fulfilled His Word. You know, as the pre- in the present day in which we live, we are the beneficiaries of God's covenant for this day. We need to consider His glory. The glory of His, his grace. It's in His grace that He has chosen. In His grace He has called us. In His grace He has converted us. In His grace that He has cleansed us. All given to us in Christ. There's no goodness, either real or potential, for which God saved us. He didn't save us because He thought we would be of any value to Him. He saved us for the glory of His own name. It's a fool who stands before God and says, Lord, if you do this, I promise to do this because that's, that's not God's way. no goodness no real goodness no potential goodness well God says, oh, I'll save him because I know someone down line I'll benefit no God saves sinners and it's a work of his sovereign grace when he when he converts but his continue, he continues his daily expressions of faithfulness to us what's he doing he's fulfilling his he's fulfilling his promises his promise of faithfulness to His people. His promise of care for His people. His promise of provision. Those things that we need. He's fulfilling His promise to us. Why does He do that? Because He says there in verse, because you're righteous. You're good. You do what is right. And you've assumed care. You've assumed responsibility for us having entered into this covenant. We, re- we are all the benef- beneficiaries. We receive all the good. And you're faithful to your promise. The glory of God's goodness to His people. He is glorious. And the Levites, as they led the, the people here in this great confession here again, let's see, the, let's see the glory of God in His covenant. The glory of His grace. The glory of His goodness as He reveals that to us in His covenant with Abraham. Finally, we see 
He is glorious in His compassion. He is glorious in His compassion. How was it that God fulfilled this promise? What was the process? What did He actually do to fulfill the promise that He had made with Abraham and the promise not only to Him, but also to the coming generations? We see here just in our text, of course, we know from, from reading from the Scriptures itself that He did great and extraordinary things in the lives of His people. They review something of us here. Of some of these things they've done. We need to remember though, some, initially, initially, it, just looking at the story as it went, it may appear that in fact, that the promise appears to have been forgotten because God's promise to Abraham was what? I will make of you a great nation. I will bless all the nations through you. And what happens? We find that Three generations later that the people are... They go to Egypt, which was for their care, but as they're there, what happens? They're brought into slavery. Where's the promise of God? Where's the promise of God and His his covenant that He's made with Abraham? Has God forgotten? Well, in fact, if you look over in the book of Genesis 15 with me. Genesis chapter 15. This is God's promise to, to Abram. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, this is the covenant, folks, right here. A deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, for they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. There's part of the covenant. Has God forgotten His promise? No, He told Abraham up front. The people are going to be oppressed for 400 years. Why? Verse 14. I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, verse 16, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What's God doing? He's doing a number of things. One of the things he's doing, he's getting ready to bring judgment upon a nation. And the means he's going to do it through is his people, the Israelites, and that's in fulfillment of the promise of, of the covenant. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to come out. When they come out, it's the day of judgment for the Amorites and, and others. And I will bring forth my judgment upon them. It's not time yet. In 400 years, it will be. So it's not as though God has become slack in His promise. This is part of His promise. Part of the covenant that God made. He told them, this is what's going to happen. But what does He see? We see great interventions here. They talk about in verse 12. We see with a great pillar of a cloud, you led them by day. And then there was the fire by night. Verses 9-11 through 11 speaks of the events of the pardon of the Red Sea. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. What's He saying here? God, you've been compassionate. You heard. And you saw. And because of the covenant you had made with your servant Abraham, you have come and you've delivered. Then you did perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his servants and all the people of his land. You knew that they had acted arrogantly toward them and did make a a name for thyself as it is this day. You divided the sea. Now Now they're hitting the high points. You know the plagues. You worked mightily against Pharaoh. 
Verse 11, you divided the sea as they came out and they were trapped between the sea and the Egyptians. You delivered them. You divided the sea before them. They passed through on dry ground. Not mud. Dry ground. And their pursuers, you did hurl into the depths like a stone into raging waters. That's pretty great intervention, isn't it? That's pretty phenomenal. You know, Charlton Heston, and he just doesn't do justice to it. <laughs> Can you imagine? What a phenomenal work they were see as they were there and they're, and they're seeing the grace of God as He comes and He places that, that pillar of fire between them and the Egyptians, their enemies, and they well, still got no options. What am I going to go? No, now what am I going to do? The enemy can't come, but I still got no place to go. And then they see, as Moses puts the rod down, as they see the waters part. Wonderful interventions. And the summary of all this is as they talk about it is that you've made a name. The last part of verse 10. You made a name for yourself as it is this day. What is he saying there? God, you're still remembered for this work. They speak of the true and the living God. They speak of the God of, of Israel. They speak of the God who brought the people through the sea. You made a name for yourself. And you're remembered for that. They're still remembering you. What was God doing there? God was showing friend and foe and all of those surrounding nations who He is. And He's still remembered. You know, what happened is the children of God 40 years removed. They've already gone to Cades Barnea. They've turned their backs. They've disobeyed the Lord 40 years wandering around the wilderness. Alright, they're getting ready to go in. Joshua's leading. They go in. What's happening here? Oh, we know about you. <laughs> We've heard about your God. God had showed shown His own people he had shown the Egyptians and he had shown the nations of Canaan where they were coming. This is who you're dealing with. This is the God of glory. Great intervention, but also good instruction. Verses 13 and 14. You did come down in Mount Sinai. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Good statutes and commandments. I think about that. How many, how many laws and commandments and rules do we think are good? Well, we chaff against those things, don't we? The children of God, they recognize, well, these things are good. They're good for us. They are those things that, that tell us how to live as a community of God's people. Look at the Ten Commandments. What do you see? You see the latter part. This is how the people of God live together. You don't murder. You don't hate. You don't kill. You don't covet. You don't commit adultery. This is the way you live together. But not only that, and even more importantly, this is how you live in relation and in communion with God. I am the Lord your God. You're to have no other God before me. They're good commandments. Verse 29 of this same chapter, the last part of verse 29, they speak of the commandments of God and the law of God. He admonished them and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. They acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances. And listen how they describe that. The next phrase: "By which, if a man observes them, he shall live." Well, you keep the law of God, you're going to live. You value and treasure the law of God. Now we're not talking about 
salvation by works. We're talking about those things. The Spirit of God, He gives us a longing and desire to be right with God. And God wants to live in right fellowship with Him. So He's done that. He's given good instruction. This is how you live together. This is how you live in fellowship with Me. Verse 14, You made known to them My holy Sabbath. What's that? Sabbath of the Lord, those days that God has set apart where His people are to, to refrain from their own normal activity and to come and to give thought to Him, to worship Him, to fellowship with Him. It's a, it's, the, it's a gift that God reaffirmed to the Israelites when He made covenant with them. I'm giving you my Sabbath. It's a day of rest. It's a confession of faith. It's the world that frantically runs around and says we've got to work and labor seven days a week just to get ahead. And God says, no, you need to work for six and you rest for one and you trust me for what you need. That's a testimony of faith. And then a gracious invitation. Verse 15. Very last part. He told them to enter in. To possess it. Come with me. It wasn't God standing behind saying, Go on in there, you know, we're, we're with you here. Come with me. I'm giving you this land. You come and you possess it. A gracious invitation. What a compassionate God. He hears, He sees, He delivers, He instructs, He invites. You know, God is not one of the one of the bare minimum kind of guys, is he? Well, I'll do what I have to do for this person. I'm not going to need more than I have to. God is just a God of extravagance. Isn't He? He just keeps pouring out. You think, there can't be more. And He pours out more, more blessing, more goodness. And as we enter in and we consider just more of, of what it is to be a child of God and those gifts that are given to us in salvation, what a wonderful, what a deep gift of God it is. We don't exhaust it. As we think about those words that we throw around, think about what it means to be justified, to be right with God, to be declared righteous. Think about what it means to be sanctified, to be experiencing the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Think about what it means to be adopted, as we've considered on the Wednesday night studies here. How do you? How do you get to the depth of that? We don't. And so you come back to the place where John does in his letter there in 1 John. He says, somewhat surprised, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Who would have ever expected that? What a God of extravagance. He is gracious. He is glorious in His compassions toward us. It's not a mere deliverance from the consequence of sin. It's a deliverance from sin's power. Sin no longer has that dominion and that rule over me that it once did. It's not a mere forgiveness. But it is being received and adopted as a children of God. Could He not have forgiven us for our sin and kept us at a distance? Have we done that? Had fractured relationships and maybe someone has hurt you and you say, I can forgive them, but I'm not going to be with them. God says, I forgive you, but I receive you and I love you as my I receive you as my sons, daughters, children of God. God is a God of abundance, a God of extravagance on his beloved. 
So as the Levites have led the people in worship, they've, they've reminded and listened the God that we serve. He's glorious in His creation. No one else like that. No one has done what God has done. No one can do. There's none to be compared with Him. And He's glorious in His covenant. He's condescended. He's reached down and He chose to make a covenant with a sinful man to enter into a binding agreement with mankind. Glorious as He reveals His grace, as He reveals His goodness in the keeping of His promises and glorious in His compassion as He hears the needs, His cries of His people and He meets them. Well, the Levite's conclusion really comes at the beginning. Verse 5 again. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed. They call the people previous, arise. You bless the Lord your God. Bless Him. Speak well. Speak good things of Him. The Lord your God forever and ever. Because the Lord your God is not a God of your creation. He is not a God of your imagination. He is not a God that's been made by men. He is the God of heaven. The true and living God who is in heaven. All other gods are false. They're the work of men. And there is no end to the expression of His worth, His glory, and His praise. As we've been... The, the, the last verse of the of Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun... With no less days to what? To sing God's praise. Forever and ever. Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. He's worthy. It's not going to end. It's not going to end because He's still worthy of more. Blessed be the Lord our God. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God who is great and glorious. We would long to enter into the, to the spirit of this confession that's been made before us. It was placed before people here. It was placed before them by these Levites. It's been placed before us in Your Word. You are glorious. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for reducing You to something that we can grasp. Forgive us for... Imagining that God is like us. Oh God, forgive us for our thanklessness, our thoughtlessness. As we look next week to consider where there is actually a confessing of sin. When we see this is the beginning. When we see God in all of His glory. when we see You as we ought to see You, that we will fall on our face. And not gladly, but honestly, acknowledge our sin. Fill us, O God, with a vision of who You are. And it's in Christ's name we pray.